Hey everyone, welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people of Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakalik, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with people from this wacky little island that we live on to hear the stories that brought them to our island and also to find out the stories that brought them to the point that they are at in their lives right now. So if you're listening to this episode, this is episode number two, which was released the same time as episode number one. So I'm just going to give the same little bit of background I gave in episode one, which is the reason for this podcast is to help gain a deeper appreciation of the people who live on this island, whether they're strangers, neighbors, people you think you know. I think this is a great opportunity to get to have some deeper insight into the individuals that we share this island with. If you don't live on this island, I think it's pretty fun to get to hear people's life stories regardless, and the accumulation of stories will help give a perspective as to the kind of people that make up this island. My guest today is Shelley Easthope. Now, a lot of you might know Shelley as a shiatsu practitioner, but there is a lot more to Shelley than that, and we're going to find out more about her in today's episode, like when a great time to lose a wallet is, or why she would spend time in a tank, or why would somebody pay $500 for a salmon? We're going to get to find out these things and more. Here's my interview with Shelley Easthope. We'll see you on the other side. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well today. Thanks, Chris. All right, excellent. As we're going to start this podcast off with uh, everybody for the first question, the first question I'm going to ask you is, what brought you to Pender Island? Okay. I guess I knew Pender from days at university when I'd come here just to get out of the city. I went to UVic, so coming to Pender was easy, and it gave me a chance to be away from the city and a a nice quiet environment. And my husband knew Pender from a long time ago too, because he would come and visit friends here back in the 70s. So it was a familiar area. And I had a brother who was already living here. So all of those things recommended Pender Island. But what actually sort of forced the issue and brought us to Pender was having a daughter living in East Van. And we had a daughter my daughter's name is Alea, and uh, I felt almost panicky with a new baby in East Vancouver. Lyle and I had both grown up in rural communities or rural areas. I I actually grew up in Richmond, but it was all farmland when I grew up there. And he grew up in a rural community in Alberta. So the prospect of bringing up a child in Vancouver just felt uh, daunting to me. And it wasn't even rationally. It was just suddenly I needed to get out. And it wasn't even that I recognized why at the time. I just knew we had to move. And we both had ties to Vancouver. He had been supervising contracts there. Um renovations of buildings. And I had a clinic in Vancouver uh, that I was a partner in. So we wanted to be able to still have some access. I, I hadn't sold my clinic yet. I recognized that I'd need some kind of access to Vancouver, that I still had a community there that I worked with. So we didn't want to be too far away. And yet we wanted to be out of the city. So we looked around and we took trips, you know, we took a trip up the bigger island. We didn't go to Salt Spring 
because it was just too big for us at the time. We knew it was getting big, you know, it was getting busier. We tried to go to all the southern Gulf Islands. We couldn't go to Saturna, which I thought was pretty funny at the time because with a three-month-old baby, there was nowhere that we could stay that would allow a baby and there was no way to go to the island and get off in one day. Right away, it got ruled out because we just couldn't even go there. <laughs> so, and then we ruled out the other islands. And when we came here, my brother had a place here, which made it easy for us to visit. And um, well, two things happened that sort of sealed the deal for us. One, we were driving a old Datsun station wagon, and it was green. And wherever we drove, people would wave to us. And it was like, wow, these people are so friendly here. It's incredible. Well, you know, after we'd been here, after we moved and had been here a few months, we found out that Andy Novak, who worked at the recycling station as the manager, had the same car. So people, <laughs> of course, who live on Pender recognize one another on the road by their car. And they were all waving at Andy. <laughs> And we got the benefit of it. So that was kind of funny. And then uh, we went to a garage sale and I was putting my daughter into her car seat and I left my wallet on top of the car as we drove off. And we just went a block, maybe two blocks down the road when I realized, wait a minute, I put my wallet on top of the car. And so we went back to look for it. And it was nowhere. Like, it was just gone. And we thought, that is just weird. Like, where could it have gone? <laughs> so we went and reported it. We reported it, I think, at the ferry because that was the only logical place <laughs> that was open on a I think it was Sunday. Yeah, it was a Sunday. And then we went back to my brother's house. And I thought, well, I have credit cards in there. I have all, you know, all these different things. So I went into his house and I was just about to make the calls to cancel all those cards. And I heard someone outside say, does a Shelly, is there a Shelly Eastope staying here? And uh, it was someone who lived up the road who'd been on his way from church or or to church, and had seen this wallet by the side of the road, picked it up, asked around, found out where my brother lived, and came over with the wallet to give it back to me. Wow. Yeah. So when that happened, we just went, this is the kind of community we want to live in, where people actually care enough to make the effort to find out who lost this and get it back to them. Like, it was really significant. Did, did you ever figure out who that person was? Or uh, Yeah, you... yeah. I mean, he doesn't live here anymore. He's moved away since. But yeah, it was someone, we didn't get to know him well. But after we lived here for a while, yeah, we got, you know, we knew him. We knew his brother. We now, how <laughs> could you not? It's a, it's a small <laughs> island. Well, wait, what year was this that uh, this happened in? That was 1990. So, and then how long did it take for that uh, initial move to happen from East Van to Pender? We bought our property when my daughter was three months old. And we actually uh, moved over here when she was six months old. So, it didn't take very long. We were looking up until she was three months old. So, it, you know, it was pretty fast. Uh, my husband lived here right away, I think, almost right away after we bought our property. But I stayed with my daughter at my mom's, which was uh, near Tawasson. So it was easy to come back and forth. He was busy 
because we bought property, we had to clear the land and start to get to know it. So he was busy working on the property and beginning to make connections here so that he'd have work here as well. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think it's a kind of a common story that a lot of people who move to the island wind up knowing somebody before moving here and yeah. that there's some sort of family connection that uh, is associated with that. But was your brother the first in your family to live on the island? Yeah, he was. I did have an uncle who owned property here long before, but we didn't even know that till we'd, <laughs> till we'd started living here. And he actually owned property quite near to where we're living now, which is interesting. Yeah, for sure. So never as a child did he come over to visit your uncle? Or? No, no. He didn't ever develop the property. It was just one of those, our, our family o- tended to own land here and there more rurally uh, in the province. And it was a big family. So we didn't know where people had their land. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's back this up a little bit to the East Van days about uh, you living there and I guess becoming pregnant with Alea and it sounds like you had some strong feelings about wanting to um, not raise a child in the city. Where were you originally raised? Where were you, where, okay. where were you I was, born? I was born in Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, but my parents were living in Richmond. So I grew up in Richmond. I lived there till I was 12 or 13 and then we moved out to Delta, built a house out there always lived in houses that were in the process of being built and I still live in a house that's, <laughs> that's not quite finished. So so, um, so I lived in Delta until I went to university, uh, went to U, uh, UBC for a year and then over to UVic. And then after that, moved to Winnipeg just for fun with some friends, just to experience the prairies and experience what that was like. And quite enjoyed it, but I wouldn't want to have to live in that kind of um, uh, temperature (laughs) for very long. The dryness of the prairies was really hard to take. For sure, yeah. Yeah. And so from there, uh, moved. uh, Actually, then I traveled a bit in Europe and I met someone from South Africa, and I ended up going there and living there and getting married to him. And that lasted uh, not very long, <laughs> and I returned returned to Vancouver. I found the whole experience, um, not just the marriage and, and that part of it, but the experience of living in South Africa in the early 80s was very tiring, uh, very stressful experience. A Canadian going into that culture, I was so naive that it took me years to understand some of the experiences I'd had back in Canada to get some perspective and go, oh, that's why that happened. Or, oh, that's what that was about. Really? Yeah. Well, well, yeah, if you're willing to talk about that more, I'm curious because obviously apartheid is a part of our recent history. And Mm -hmm. uh, obviously living in Canada, we have no experience with what that's like. But um, what were some of the experiences that you reflected upon that helped uh, helped you understand it more? Well, it's interesting that from your perspective, we don't have much experience of it because something a lot of people don't know is that apartheid was actually designed based on our reservation system. So people came from South Africa to Canada and looked at what we were doing, and that influenced the design of the apartheid system. Wow, really? Yeah. So before I went, I did all my research, and I that's when I learned that, for instance. So I did a lot of reading about South Africa 
America before going and thought that I was somewhat prepared. But going there as a Canadian, basically, quite often, I don't even see race. Because in Canada, your race doesn't matter. You know, people have rights, irrelevant of what race they are. (laughs) Whereas in South Africa, your rights were very much based in your color, your your race. And so it was hard for me because I often didn't recognize what was going on around me because I didn't see color. So one one example of this was I went job hunting after I'd been there maybe a month, month and a half, I was job hunting. And I was, we were living right downtown in Johannesburg. And my husband was an engineer. I was a, I had qualification to be a teacher. But I also had worked in hospitals as a child life worker and, you know, had quite a background working sort of in a social work uh, area. So there was a hospital right near us called the Rand Hospital, uh, probably the Witwatersrand Hospital. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go see if there's any work there. So I took my curriculum vitae and I, I went, it was probably about a kilometer away. I walked over, I got directed to the personnel office, which was way down in the basement. And I walked all the way through this hospital with this kind of odd feeling. I felt like people were watching me, like I was sort of out of place and people were watching me, but I had no idea why. I just had that, you know, that feeling. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) And so got to the personnel office and there there were uh, a couple of women in there. They were both black. They looked at me as if I had horns when I walked in the door. And were you wearing horns? <laughs> I was not wearing okay, so you Not to my knowledge. Okay. <laughs> Maybe so. there were horns. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you did not put the horns on in the morning. No. Okay. All right. Okay. But they were looking at you funny. What, they what? really looked at me funny. And I explained why I was there, that I wanted to apply for work. And I handed this woman the curriculum vitae. And I remember how she took it was like, she had this puzzled look on her face and was a little uncomfortable, but was quite willing, you know, quite willing to take it. And everything was pleasant. And I said, thank you. And off I went and did whatever else I did that day, made more applications, probably went home. And I also remember at the end of the day, when my husband came back from work and asked me about what I'd done, I told him that that was one of the things. And he said, oh, good for you. Like, that's great. That's great that you did that. And I thought, that's a little overboard for, you know, just putting in a job application, but okay, you know, I didn't question it, but but it did register that he was really quite enthusiastic about this application. So then time went on, I ended up working at a school for learning disabled kids. Yeah, they never did get back to me from from the hospital. So I guess what you're alluding to, though, is that just with the race uh, issue in play, the yeah. white woman going into a predominantly black hospital is... Well, what I realized years later, I was describing this to someone and suddenly it hit me that there were no white people working in that hospital, gotcha. except the heads, maybe department heads or surgeons or, you know, there were a few people, probably mostly male, who were white in the whole hospital. 
Okay. And so there, the segregation was such that it was a hospital for black patients. And so black people worked there. And I didn't even see that as a Canadian. I didn't see people as black and white. Mm. I saw them as people. It took me 10 years to go, oh, all those people were black. That's what was so odd. Interesting. <laughs> you know, when when I was in elementary school, I had a pretty uh, multicultural elementary school that I went to and I had two best friends and one was Chinese and the other was uh, Punjabi. And same thing, you know, from that young age, it just was so normalized that you had friends who were from different uh, ethnic backgrounds, different races, but you never saw them as as that. They were just your friends or people you went to uh, school with and hung out with after school, right? And so, you know, I always look back on my own experiences growing up as a child. I grew up in Burnaby, just in Vancouver, and how amazing it is to have started that way off because I guess with what I'm hearing from the story about South Africa is that the people living there, the way it starts off as a child bleeds into being an adult and all you see is the division and... and exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you live with yeah, it. Yeah. You're taught that division from birth and, and so you remember. Whereas I did all kinds of things that in retrospect were probably actually dangerous because of my naivety, <laughs> you know? Such as going out to neighborhoods that you shouldn't go to? I took the bus to the Asian plaza, it was called. And that's where I'd do my shopping because I liked the Asian. (laughs) It was fascinating. And my husband kind of supported that too. You know, he certainly supported me in my (laughs) obliviousness. But in retrospect, people, when I've said that to people, they say, oh, you did that all by yourself? Hmm. You know, like... That's kind of kind of gutsy to do that. To me, it wasn't gutsy. It was just, well, that's what I wanted. So that's where I went, you know. <laughs> it's interesting over the course of time how subtle influences from our peers can wind up affecting our decisions and then creating the life that we wind up living. And we don't even think about it after a while. It mm-hmm. just becomes so normal that, oh, these are things you do. These are things you don't do. So, you know, what you're describing about being a Canadian transplanted into this situation and not knowing any difference. It, I don't know. I, I would wonder if that would have had any uh, influence or any impact in your circle of friends that uh, you had there to maybe change their perspective a little bit. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that I changed a lot of people's perspective. Certainly the family I married into, uh, I had a big impact there. Oh, yeah? How, was, yeah? how so? Well, I think just them having to accept a Canadian, it was really difficult for them to accept a Canadian into their family. And they did eventually. But that was... Um, a difficult process for them. And the way I did things was different. The way I saw the world was different. So to have someone actually in your family who's that different is challenging. (laughs) I'm sure it is, definitely. I did things like when I stayed with him, I remember one day there was fruit all over uh, that had dropped from the trees. There were peaches and apricots that had dropped. And so here that fruit that's dropped on the ground, you don't want to waste it. I was used to, I'd grown up rurally on on a little acreage and we would pick up that fruit and make something like chutney with it, right? Because it, it was still good, but it wasn't perfect. So, so I went, one day I had nothing to do. I went out, picked up all the fruit, 
made chutney. I was all proud of it. And they came home at the end of the day and and they were pleased, but very carefully or very um, tactfully, my mother-in-law said to me, you know, here, we usually try to leave that fruit for the servants so that they can have it. Oh, wow. And I understood that I was being seen instead of as frugal, which here people would say, oh, good for you, you know, using up all that yeah. dropped fruit. I was being seen as ungenerous or unkind. Wow. Yeah. It's so fascinating, the the difference in culture. It, it was fascinating to me. And that's the biggest thing I learned there. And I learned not to judge people as a certain way based on how I see them, right? So when I came back, people had all these judgments about South Africans and about apartheid. And there was validity to it, but they didn't see the kind and good people who were working so hard to make apartheid healthier and useful. They only saw the negative aspects of apartheid. So it's easy to say it was bad and all the people who were involved in it were bad, but sometimes people do things with all good intention and it has a very negative consequence. And that's what I learned there, that our good intentions often often have a very negative consequence and not to be too quick to judge people. Sure. No. And I think having that first-hand experience of uh, it's it's easy to watch the news and to form opinions based on tidbits of information that you wind up receiving, but it's a completely different experience to go live it for yourself and see these nuanced circumstances that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, we're all just people and everyone's tr doing their best, you know? That's, that's all we no can. No matter who they are, they're doing their best. And it taught me that, living there and seeing that. Nice. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's jump out of South Africa. <laughs> okay. We're going out of Africa here. You mentioned Lyle, your husband, mm -hmm. who was not your first husband in South, uh, South Africa. How'd, uh, how did you wind up meeting Lyle? Oh, that's an interesting story, too. <laughs> I was uh, in Vancouver. I got interested in shiatsu and Reiki, and I studied that. I had been um, about to study medicine when I studied shiatsu and Reiki and got sidetracked and found it fascinating. So in the process of working uh, as a shiatsu therapist, I was hired to work in a flotation clinic where you do you go into a little tank and you lay there in this heavy salt water solution you lay on the solution actually and so it's a sensory deprivation tank or restricted environmental stimulation is so a rest tank restricted oh. environmental okay, stimulation gotcha. yeah so i was working in a center uh that offered that so i got to to float in those tanks all the time and i would often go in after a shift of work particularly if i was you know, if I'd seen a lot of patients that day, then I'd go into the tank to relax because it, I guess it revives your body really quickly. You, you heal really quickly in those tanks. And so I could see 12 people go into the tank and then go out dancing till three in the morning and feel great. Wow. You know, yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> How long did you go in that tank for? Uh, usually about an hour, an hour and a half, but it depended. The longest I think I spent in there was three hours. 
Okay. And that was amazing. And so were the benefits mainly physical or they're also uh, emotional? Or? Yeah, emotional benefit as well. Um, you have to kind of overcome your fear of the dark. And uh, sometimes it would feel like it was difficult to breathe. And then you, with time, you get through all that, you know. So you can do visualization in the tank. Athletes use it a lot. So you visualize things that you're going to do or that you would like to do. And it apparently has really profound benefits. So a lot of Olympic athletes or that caliber of athlete would use the tank in that way and work with a psychologist who would then give them their visualizations to use while they're in the tank. So you can use it that way as well. Um, but you just used it as, as a tool to go out and party later. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. That too. (laughs) Which is important as well. It's it's kind of Olympic sport though. Yeah. Yeah. It it was a self-development tool too. I did a lot of work with uh, the person who owned it um, did dream therapy. And so often we'd... we debrief dreams and then later I'd go into the tank and then I'd have a deeper insight afterwards. It's not, it, it's not a mental process like you, you actually think while you're in there, but you know how you'll go to sleep and the next morning you wake up and you have the solution to something you were trying to work out. Yeah. It's like that. The tank is like super sleep. You know, it's wow. in an hour you can come out and, oh, that's that's the solution to that kind of thing. So that's that's the kind of thing that would happen. My wife has uh, used the sensory deprivation tanks on uh, a few occasions. Every time we'd take a road trip down to Oregon, she would make sure that she uh, went into one in Portland. Uh-huh. And then, well, I went to go play disc golf because I found that more important. <laughs> And then uh, recently, I know that uh, I think one opened up in Victoria or... or yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, she she raved about it. She really enjoyed the experience. And um, yeah, and then I've talked... I talked to somebody recently who... A friend of a friend who owns one, has one of his oh, own. Oh, wow. Yeah. He kind of hoards it, he said, because he's like, I, I don't want other people going in. It's my own water. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, also, it takes a lot of maintenance. So, you know, you'd be careful about having a lot of people because the more people who float in it, the more maintenance it would need. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so wait, how did, how did you meet Lyle? Well, yeah, let's get there. <laughs> so I was working in a flotation tank center. Yes. Okay. He was working out at UBC okay. in a, the rest lab, they called it, restricted environmental stimulation tank lab. And they needed for the experiments that he was um, doing all the experimentation for a psychologist, right? So he was conducting it all the research. And he was also the technical person who ran the whole lab. So for their experimentation, they needed frequent floaters. So that was the control group, I think. And then they had first time floaters. So they put out a call for frequent floaters. And I think the criteria was you had to have floated more than 80 hours or more than 100 hours, something like that. So I thought, oh, okay. And I thought at the time, oh, I might meet interesting people out here. I might even meet someone who is a prospective partner. Wow. So you had that I had that thought, yeah. And then I went and I, in order to do it, you had to have all these electrodes placed on your head. It was a cap that had electrodes and then electrodes on for the heart, uh, monitoring your heart and so forth, because they were monitoring all your body 
while you're in the tank, right? So they place these electrodes on you. And when I got out, I was impressed with what a good job they did because you float in this tank without anything on. And I thought, well, how are they going to do all this with the electrodes and stuff? But they had a nice kimono for you to wear so you could be quite modest while all this was done. And then I came out and they had to take all these electrodes off my scalp. And so you know, they were glued on there in those days. I think there's better technology now. So Lyle was just so gently and carefully taking these electrodes out of my scalp. I was incredibly impressed. Like, I just thought, what a kind person. I could feel it come through his hands, how kind he was and attentive. However, I was not at all interested, you know, (laughs) except I just thought he was a really remarkable person. Through his touch. Through his touch. That's really fascinating, actually, because um, to be able to uh, identify somebody as being such a quality individual by the way that they handle you, I, yeah. I, I wonder how unique of an experience that is. I don't think that's ever really happened to me before, but um, that's yeah, really amazing. I guess it is an unusual, because <laughs> you don't usually have that much intimate experience with someone you don't really know, right? No, no. Unless it's a, a medical situation. So what, because uh, I'm always really curious about how people wind up meeting. So what turned the tides? Uh... Well, he helped as a friend and I started to want to open our own center. Uh, we got Lyle to help us because he was a construction contractor kind of person. We got him to give input as to the best uh, location for it. And we had thought of having flotation tanks in our center. And so we thought we needed his expertise. He was going to design that part of it. Uh, so he was involved. And so we kept in touch, you know, for a long time. It takes time to develop something like that. And in the end, we didn't have flotation tanks, but he did help us with looking at locations for where we might uh, set up our center. So we kept in touch and then we kind of lost touch for, I don't know, six months, a year. And then I just ran into him on the street just as we were about to open our center. And he came to that party. He looked totally different And he gave me a big hug, which he'd never hugged before. You know, he never seemed approachable like that. But he'd gone through a big change in his life and he was more available. You know, he was available. And from then on, we just seemed to hit it off. So... Okay. So you two wind up having a child, a Leo, a young woman, probably well known to many people who live on Pender Island. Yeah. And uh, you move here. Where was the first uh, property that you wound up? Was it where you're living now? It's where we're living now. Yeah. So near Medicine Beach. Yes. We, uh, again, it was not a very rational decision. (laughs) We um, looked at a few properties around the island. We wanted something that had a little more land than than just a property um, for a residence. Like we wanted a little more land to be able to spread out in or whatever. And there wasn't much available at the time. We, we thought maybe around four acres. Uh, there was one property we looked at that was like that, but um, the house was an older house and just didn't seem quite right. And then we looked at this property, which was an acre and a third. And we really liked the location being close to Medicine Beach. And there was a huge 
old growth tree that we thought was on our property. In those days, you didn't need it all surveyed before. So actually, the the lot they showed us was half on our lot and half on the lot next door. And that tree was on the lot next door. But anyway, we ended up making an offer that we thought was too low to be accepted. And it was accepted. That was a sign to us too, okay, this must be right, because it was just immediately accepted and it was what we could afford. And years late, a few, quite a few years later, I don't know how long, the property next door that we thought we were getting, we actually bought that lot too. So now we have a, you know, almost three acres and on the land that we originally intended to get. So <laughs> Right on. And so that old growth, is it a fir, old growth fir? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it's, you know, it's not in really great shape, but it's really big. It would take uh, more than four people to get your arms around it. That would be that would be a nice experience. Just to everybody wrap wrap their arms around a tree and yeah. connect. Have you guys done that before? We I don't think we have. No. Okay. Well, maybe maybe in the future, maybe a, a next family gathering. Who knows? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we spoke earlier um, before we started the interview, and you mentioned about Medicine Beach, and I just wanted to uh, ask some questions about Medicine Beach because uh, there's some history to it that that you can share with uh, myself and the listeners, and uh, you can go ahead. Okay. Well, when we moved there. Medicine Beach, that whole area was owned by a family, the marsh, and then the upland that you can walk up now. Uh, it was all owned by one family. And they had been approaching the trust for years, wanting to donate the marsh portion in return for subdividing the upland portion, just so that they could divide it between two parts of the family. So they wanted to be able to divide the upland portion in half so that you know, they could share it in their family appropriately. And that just didn't fit in with the guidelines we had in terms of bylaws and so forth. In fact, they told me eventually that they had tried, I think it was seven times they'd approached the trust about doing this. And every time they'd gotten absolutely no cooperation. So they made one final attempt to do this. And the trustee who was elected at that time Instead of just saying no, he said, well, you know, I can't do anything about it, but maybe you want to talk to a couple of people who really have an interest in that area and let them have a look at it with you and see if there's something we can come up with. And so I had been very vocal. There was a proposal to have a pub uh, where Medicine Beach Market is now. And I'd been very vocal against that because it didn't feel like the appropriate use of the land for that location. And I'd learned a lot about the marsh. And, and one of the things was that it was the sole remaining part saltwater, part freshwater marsh intact in the southern Gulf Islands. Wow, in the entire southern Gulf Islands. Yeah, okay. and that's because those areas are usually dredged. They make great marinas, right? So that's what happens to them. And in fact, this family told me they'd been approached many times by people who wanted to purchase it to become a marina. So it was in danger of having that happen. But this family recognized the importance of it. They recognized the value of it as it was, and they didn't want that to happen to it. So their names were the Atkins, the Atkins family. They had a big publishing firm in Vancouver. So they spoke with us. It, it turned out that Carl Hampson and I were the two people that the trustees recognized as maybe being willing 
to have a look at this proposal that they'd made. And they chose me just because I'd been vocal in this campaign to say no to the pub there. And perhaps that's what they knew about Carl. I don't know. But at the time, he was also the first president of the Island Conservancy Association. That probably played a role in it as well. Anyway, after talking with them, we figured the first step was to survey the property and see actually what we were talking about. So we walked it with a surveyor and the surveyor said to us, wow, this is so beautiful. Why don't you just buy the whole thing? And Carl and I, I remember just looking at each other and going, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, why don't we? <laughs> and so, so that's what happened. And he took it to the conservancy. He took uh, the proposal to, to fundraise and to buy this whole parcel of land. Now, of course, they gave the swamp part, they gave free sort of as a donation. And then we bought the remaining part. He took that to the conservancy and they voted yes. There was a, yeah, a huge amount of support from the community to go ahead and do that. Nice. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating to hear that story because I've been down to Medicine Beach. I can't count how many times to watch beautiful sunrises come up there just to sit by the water. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just sort of don't understand the story that or the stories that go into creating spaces like that. That's incredible. That's great. That must have felt like a real big victory for it you guys. It really was. I mean, it was hard work. It was about a year out of my life really working at it because before the fundraising campaign was about six months. But before that, we put in a lot of time to just get people to get it going. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was hard work and there were a lot of people involved, huge number of people, but it was also a very community building experience because we, we had fun doing it and we, you know, it really brought the community together to actually purchase a piece of land we purchased as a community. Sure. What were some of the fundraising events you guys did for that? Well, I remember one that Don Williams was head of our fundraising committee, and he was a physician on the island at the time. One day, he went out early in the morning and caught a salmon and took it down to the the farmer's market, which was at the Driftwood Center back then, and raffled it. And so I think he made, I don't know, I think he made about $500 off that salmon. Wow, one fish, $500. Yeah. Wow. What yeah. a, what a, what a salesman. I got together with a, um, right at the beginning before the fundraising campaign started, I got together with an artist up the street from me, Corey Alice, and she and another woman, Pamela Brooks, put together a silk screen for t-shirts. And so we sold t-shirts all summer at the farmer's market. That was a, you know, a good, good fundraiser. And it was, it raised the profile and I still have a couple of those t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah. Uh, the other question that we're always going to ask on this show is who on Pender Island has given you help along the way? And this is just an opportunity for guests to uh, highlight somebody else in the community to uh, yeah, just speak to uh, some help that they've received in the community and uh, just throwing that question out uh, to mm -hmm. you, Shelley. 
Well, one of the first people who who really influenced my work here on Pandora Island, because I do shiatsu and reiki, and I I have had a practice since we moved here. Um, there was a physician, Ellen Anderson, who lived on the island and practiced here actually before we moved here. She had a daughter the same age as my daughter, and she uh, had a treatment with me right near the beginning of me being here and then recommended my work to other people. So right away, I started getting clients. And I think that was a huge boost because when you have a a physician recommend a complimentary practitioner, there's just more credibility there. So that made a big difference. So I appreciated that. And then Mary Rare, I've known since I first lived here. She also had a young child at the time. And Mary, I guess at the time, she was probably studying to be a music therapist. And she became a a music therapist and does something called the Bonnie method of guided imagery to music. And uh, Mary and I have exchanged, so I'll do treatments for her and she'll do guided imagery sessions for me. And over the years, we've done that for 26 years at least. So we've had that exchange. And having that kind of long-term interdiscipline, but you know, in a similar discipline to me, someone who understands the way I work and I understand the way she works, that's been really supportive. Because in a small community, there aren't that many colleagues. You know, you don't have the associations and, and so forth that support you like you do in a big city. In Vancouver, there was a professional association of shiatsu therapists that I was engaged with. But here on Pender, you know, I was the only shiatsu therapist for years. And there's been one or two come or go. But it's been great to have Mary as someone that I have a lot in common with and can kind of speak the same language. What drew you to shiatsu initially? Uh, It was my own experience. I was prepping to go into medical school and uh, I thought that was the route I needed to take because I'd been, I'd gotten really frustrated working with, uh, I, I did primarily work with families and young children and found that the whole social system I was working within had constraints and that I just didn't feel very effective. And I thought, oh, I'll go back to school and become a doctor and I'll be able to be more effective that way was my general feeling and was just interested in how people worked and so forth. And uh, then I had some issues myself after coming back from South Africa. And later I realized it was probably gallstones and gallbladder pain, but it would create incredible pain whenever I walked quickly or did any kind of major movement. And Western medicine was not helping. You know, I went to a variety of practitioners that didn't help much at all. The first Reiki treatment I had was just in a yoga class. A woman put her hands over my gallbladder area and I hadn't even told her you know, that I had this pain or where it was. She was just drawn to treat me there while I was in some yoga pose. And at the end of the class, she said, wow, you really responded to the energy. It was really strong. When you go home, you might have a healing crisis. I just want you to be aware. I thought, oh, yeah, interesting. (laughs) I mean, I have a very open mind, but I was very Western trained. So 
I didn't discount what she said as not true. I just was like, oh, well, maybe. Who knows? Let's see what happens. <laughs> and I went home and I woke up in the middle of the night with this pain and it was horrible. It was worse than usual. And usually I only got it when I was active and doing something. So it was quite different. But she'd said that to me. So I thought, okay, well, let's see, you know, and I had ginger tea, which always relaxes, you know, it warms up your insides and relaxes them. So I thought, well, that'll help. That's an old family remedy. So I had my ginger tea. And then after a while, it started getting better. And I went back to bed, woke up in the morning, was fine. And I never had that pain again. So I've treated people during passing gallstones since then. Mm Mm-hmm. And I recognize now I was probably just passing the gallstones that had been there causing irritation for a long time. But that was dramatic enough to make me go, oh, I'm going to study this. <laughs> you know, I have to do more of this. And so I just started doing more. So it just came from a situation where you, you were healed yeah. from an ailment that you had. And, and then it was just wanting to help other people with that. Yeah. Yeah. And just fascinated. I'd been studying shiatsu at that point. It was helpful. So I continued to study uh, in Asian medicine, which shiatsu and Reiki are both, you know, in the larger spectrum of Asian medicine. Now, I'm going to be honest here. I have a very, very limited understanding of what either of those actually really are. So maybe some other people listening uh, are the same way as well, too. Could you just tell us a little bit more about uh, shiatsu and reiki to give a little bit more of a whole understanding? Sure. Yeah. sure. Shiatsu is actually translates as finger pressure. It fits into Chinese and Japanese medicine or into Asian medicine as... Um, sort of an alternative to acupuncture. You use or it uses all the same points and pathways of energy flow in the body as acupuncturists would use. But they're they're treated using finger pressure, palm pressure, elbow pressure, if you really want to get dramatic, stretches to open up pathways and move energy. And the whole idea is that uh, energy gets stuck in areas of the body, and then the body becomes depleted in other areas. So if you can move energy and keep the energy moving freely, the body will stay healthy. So disease isn't seen as residing in one part of the body, but rather being part of this whole picture of the whole person. And not only that, but the whole environment that they live in. That's the whole sort of framework that Asian medicine provides, which is quite different than Western medicine, which sees it as a dysfunction of some one part of the body, right? Mm. Reiki uses just hands-on, and so it uses just energy in a passive sense. And that's applied by placing the hands on different parts of the body right through the clothing or blankets or whatever don't matter. And energy is just transferred between the practitioner and the individual who's receiving it. And it often feels very warm. It can get very, very hot. So you can actually feel the energy quite often. Not everyone does. And it's fascinating because some people feel Reiki, some people don't. And it's Like the first time I had it in that yoga class, I felt nothing 
as she was doing the treatment. And yet it had that profound effect. And she could feel a lot going on. I wasn't sensitized to it. I I didn't speak that language yet. Whereas now I feel it immediately. (laughs) So so they're different. Shiatsu is very active. Reiki is very passive. But they're both working directly with energy in the body. So when you're giving the treatments, do you feel the warmth and energy as well too? Or does that fluctuate with different people? Or It does change with different people. But generally, I feel, yeah, I can feel the energy and, and sense it in different parts of the body and sense what I have to do to get it to balance. Yeah, I took a reflexology course a couple of years ago because I was really drawn to that. Uh, my wife and I were in Thailand 10 years before and had done a four or five day course. And it felt like a very natural thing to be at people's feet. And uh, for people who don't know what reflexology is, it's just uh, hitting pressure points on people's feet to uh, stimulate different areas of the body because everything is represented within the bottom or the foot of an uh, individual's body. I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this. But- <laughs> no, it's just, that's great. <laughs> but so reflexology is essentially a elaborate foot massage to enhance the full body experience for people. But as I was going through the training and then going through my practicum as well too, I I found it to be extremely exhausting to be uh, working physically with people and people's ailments. And that's just my personal feeling on it. And uh, it gave me more of an appreciation for people who do this as a career Uh to spend their days aiding people in a physical way with their physical ailments. It seems like it takes a lot of energy from my perspective to do that. How does it feel for you? Yeah, I didn't experience it for most of my career as taking a lot of energy because it's what I love to do. Uh, And I think what what I do well. And part of it is you learn in Shiatsu and in Reiki how to sort of do without doing. So posture, attitude, all of these things allow you to work without effort. And that's very important. So when you're doing shiatsu, you apply pressure just by basically leaning on the person, you know, so you don't want to be pushing because that will hurt. You sort of fall into the pressure. So part of not um, getting tired is not efforting, learning actually both mentally and physically how to not effort in what you're doing, not try to fix someone go in there to connect with them rather than to try and fix them. Mm. So that's part of it. Um, And that's a big part of teaching both Shiatsu and Reiki and being a good teacher of it. But also it being the right thing for you to be doing so that you're doing it with your whole heart allows you to do it and not be exhausted at the end of a day. So uh, more recently, I found I was getting tired And I realized it's partly because I'm at a stage in my life where I need to be teaching more about what I've learned. And I have a passion to let people understand this different perspective on healing. And so I cut back the amount that I practice. I'll see clients two or three days a week now, whereas I used to practice five days a week and sometimes even six days a week. Now I only see them two or three days a week. And in the 
other part of the time, I'm developing some online courses to help people understand what it is I do to help them have a window into that world and and have more confidence in treating themselves and taking care of them their own health, you know, taking more control in their own health. Now that I've done that, I love it when I work. I'm not tired at the end of the day anymore. So I think part of it too, as I was working at the medical clinic for quite a few years, and it's on concrete, and concrete sucks energy out of your body. Doing that for five days a week, and sometimes even six days, I'd be on that concrete. I think that was part of what was tiring me out too. Whereas now I work at home and one day a week at the clinic and that's all I can take. <laughs> it's interesting, just the simplicity of what you're standing on as a you know indicator as to the longevity of, of what you're doing. Right? Yes. Yeah. I, I worked for a number of years in a warehouse and it was just day after day of being on concrete. And it, it became apparent after a, a long time, actually, of like, this is oh. not really making me feel very physically good at all, right? Yeah. Concrete's hard on the kidneys. How is it hard on the kidneys? I don't know. It just sucks the energy out. And you know how concrete absorbs moisture? Yes. That says something to me about absorbing. The kidneys have to do with the water. They're the water system in the body. Kidney bladder in Chinese medicine is the water element of the body. So it doesn't surprise me that concrete is really hard on the kidneys because it sucks the water out of you. And that's just a whole way of seeing the world that's cultivated in in Asian medicine. Yeah, it's fascinating. And thank you for sharing all that because this is all new to me. And it's really great to be able to sit across from people and uh, learn these things. And it's Mm -hmm. really fascinating. Thank you. Just to shift gears in a different direction again here, what were you like as a teenager? What was I like as a teenager? Probably pretty conservative. I, you know, went to high school, planned to go to university, didn't, didn't really drink, didn't party a lot was very creative. I did a lot of weaving and a lot of sewing and a lot of those kind of craft kind of things. I was very involved in a church group. Our family went to church. There was a church group, but it was really interesting because when I was about 15, I went to a, I guess they called it a sensitivity training. There was a psych psychiatrist who was involved with our church. Sensitivity training was the big in thing at the time in the whole psychological world. And so he designed this training and opened it up to all different church members from a large area, from all the lower mainland, I think. And I was selected to go along with another person from our young people's group. I was either 14 or 15. So I was the youngest person at this weekend. And it was done as a retreat in Capilano Canyon. And the first night, I remember he gave us this question. I think the two questions he gave out were something like, what do we most want? And what do we most fear? And we were supposed to write the answer down to that and then go around to everyone in the room and talk to people and share what we had written on our paper. And what I learned out of that was what people most want is to be loved or accepted. And what people most fear is to be left out. That was mind blowing for a teenager. And so 
it shaped the way I was because it was quite a powerful experience to realize that even these people who were like 75 years old, that was their biggest concern. And me, the youngest person there, that was my biggest concern, you know, when you boiled it all down. And then we went on and we did all these sensitivity exercises. And the friend I was there with, we came home and we immediately introduced this to our young people group and started doing that. And our group grew. I mean, it was huge. And it was always done in a circle. And we'd sing and we did some of these exercises we'd experienced. And it created a really strong community. And so I think that had a big influence on my life and where I was going. But it was sort of who I already was, too. <laughs> so... Well, it's yeah. fascinating that you're able to pinpoint a certain moment of your life that's had a profound effect in you. And mm-hmm. I, I guess it's the realization that human nature doesn't really change no matter what age you are, that we do want to feel accepted and we do want to have connection with others. And yeah, what a beautiful lesson to learn. And how do you think that it impacted choices that you made in your life beyond that time? Well, it always made me understand that whoever it was I was interacting with, the bottom line, that would be their desire. So certainly we still forget it because we're, you know, our own interest is usually uppermost in our concern, right? It is, yeah. So so we do forget it. But in decision making, in in sort of choosing my path, I guess I always kept that somehow in mind, you know, in evaluating my interactions with other people, that was always there, that that was what was most important. It kept things in perspective for me. I wasn't um, drawn into super partying, for instance, because it didn't improve the connection with people in a certain way. Like it didn't make a deeper connection. It was a more superficial one. Uh Yeah. So yeah, I was always looking for places where there was more chance to connect and more chance to understand people at a deeper level. Yeah, it seems so obvious that wanting to get together with um, friends at parties and using drugs and alcohol as a way to to make it easier to to mm-hmm. create the circumstances for people to come together. It's just lubricating the circumstances to have connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you can have connection so many different ways. Yeah, and and uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I, I have no problem with that. But I wasn't particularly attracted because making connection in that way, it also compromises your ability to observe those connections, right? So if you're stoned or if you're drinking or whatever, uh, there's a lot of awareness that's lost. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. I spent a lot of my time as my teenagers with (laughs) drinking and doing other things to create connection and still do to some extent at this point in my life. But uh, it's a wonderful thing that when you are able to connect with somebody and find things that you relate to them with. And uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think you want your legacy to be? Hmm. I got to think about that. That's a big question. It's a huge question. And it's not one I had planned. It just came to mind. Well, two things come to mind immediately when you ask me that question. One, I'd like to leave the world as if I've never been here. You know, that sense of tread lightly. I don't want to put a scar, I guess. I don't want to leave a scar on the earth. 
But on the other hand, I would like to have added joy to the world. I would hope that I'd leave that kind of imprint in lives, but not in a big way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that it's interesting. I'm really curious to see how this project is going to unfold about interviewing people who choose to move to a small island. Mm -hmm. And I would assume, maybe right, maybe not, that a lot of the people who wind up moving to a small island do want to have a small impact. Mm -hmm. And we'll see. We'll see if that plays out because I'm not too sure, right? But yeah. there, there's a reason why, you know, we're, we're not living in big cities and that we're drawn to this situation that whether it be to tread lightly or to bring joy, that if we can even do that in a small way, that'll, yeah. that'll feel pretty good. Yeah, I have a an alter ego character that I developed actually for the Recycling Society when we needed board members. And she came to the annual general meeting and her name's Delightful Delilah. And uh, this alter ego character, that's what she teaches, is that by doing small, insignificant things and actions by small, insignificant people doing small, insignificant things make the biggest change. Hmm. It's, it's because you can't force change. It has to come from the grassroots. And uh, I think that we see that here on these islands, you know. Sure. And the biggest changes I think that you can make are the ones you're most passionate about. Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about the realization about doesn't change through people's lifetimes about their basic needs that I'm sure that information could be used pretty well by marketers to sell breakfast cereal. <laughs> right. <laughs> Or it can be used to find connection and, you know, grow connections and find, you know, healthy love with other people, right? Yeah. That it's, it can yeah. be used in, in a multitude of ways. I but certainly remind myself of that in the community because there's been lots of controversies. You know, in a small community, there always are divisions and controversies. And I've kind of learned not to take sides, but to remember that we all really want the same thing, love and belonging, you know? <laughs> So it's not helpful to really take sides. It's more helpful to try and see the other person's side. Incredibly hard to do sometimes. Incredibly hard to do, yeah. But rewarding when it happens. I'm a Libra, so I like to... <laughs> Me too. What? <laughs> uh, when I saw you, you opened your palms up when you are explaining that. <laughs> and I, I, I think I saw your Libra-ness come yeah. out. No offense, too sharp to sit on for us. <laughs> Decisions are hard to come by. That's right. <laughs> Definitely. I guess the last thing I want to end off with is maybe a question that I wanted to ask earlier, but if you could just tell me a little bit about your parents. Oh, okay. Well, my mom lives here on Pender, and she still does. She's 95. She was a florist by training and uh, met my dad while she was a florist. And she originally was from the East Coast uh, and moved out to Vancouver with her mother after her father died, just following the First World War. Her father died, um, probably because he was so weak from, from whatever happened there. And uh, so she grew up in Vancouver with her mother and her mother's mother and her mother's whatever. There were three generations wow. uh, that grew up, or that were not that grew up here, but that lived here. So there was my great-great-grandmother, my great-grandmother, and my grandmother all lived in Vancouver, and then my mother. 
So I guess four generations of women. And she's living on Pender Island. And she's living on Pender Island now. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So there's her. And then my dad came from a family uh, that was a big family. And he, they originally, I guess the grandfather came from England to Vancouver. And eventually my father's father started a business that made marine engines. And it's a a business that was really well known on the coast. They made some of the first engines ever put in boats. And so they pretty much ran the fishing fleet on the coast for a long time. Um, When I came to Pender, a lot of people recognized my name and a lot of people ask, oh, are you know, are you any relationship to the engines? And uh, it's interesting. I think Lyle and I got a little warmer reception from the old timers here just because of that connection. People really respected uh, that family and that business, and uh, they had a lot of integrity. And so people associate me with that, and that's been great. Yeah. It was, it made some good engines, those guys. <laughs> She's got to be good. She comes from a family of strong engines. But that's great. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you so much again, Shelly, for coming in. And and just so the listeners know is that I just contacted Shelly kind of out of the blue about this because she was recommended to me by my wife as a potential uh, interview subject. And she was so gracious about uh, coming in to do it. And it's a really vulnerable thing to come in and share stories of your life and having not knowing what this is going to wind up sounding like and everything. I just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, just taking a chance and coming on in. And I thoroughly enjoyed this. And thank you. It's been my pleasure, Chris. It's uh, it's fun. It makes, makes one reflect and uh, think about things I haven't thought about for years. <laughs> and every time, I think every time you talk about something or, or go over something, you maybe learn a little more about it. So I appreciate that and, uh, and your skill at drawing out the stories. Thank you. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. All right. Well, there you go. And in honor of that interview, I decided I would come and visit Medicine Beach. Now, Medicine Beach is located on the North Island, and it's kind of a unique spot because from here, you can see the top tip of the South Island off to your left, and off to your right, you can see the bottom tip of the North Island. And it faces out east, and right now, about 8.45 in the morning, the sun's fairly high up in the sky for a winter day. And I'm standing at a lookout point that I climbed up the 74 steps that are off to your left as you park. And I'm just leaning up against an arbutus tree that's creeping its way out towards the ocean and just feeling the warmth on my body right now. Thank you for listening, everybody. Until next time.